the, the Scripture tells us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And some of us are bent uh, more towards one of those than the other. Uh, but for the calling of the follower of God, uh, those, all those things are to come under the authority of God. And so today, I'm just going to give you that warning that this is one of those messages where you're going to have to love God with your mind. You're going to have to engage your mind. You're going to have to track with me. I've got some, some things here that uh, maybe for some of you are like, that, that's a simple. I know, I know we have some PhDs in the room, so this is really dumb stuff. But for the rest of us, uh, there, there, there might be some stuff just to engage engage us a little bit. We're, we're starting a new series, and uh, Kenton already read the scripture uh, through the book of Genesis. Uh, two reasons, two goals for this ter- series is, is first to establish a framework for the whole Bible. Last week we looked at, Jesus said that all the scriptures in some way, shape, or form point to him. Uh, and so you should have some understanding that that's what the purpose of the word of God is. We saw last week that, that the, the Bible is not about us, and that's a wonderful thing. The Bible's not a, a, a manual to fix your life. In fact, if you come at it like that, uh, it won't. Uh, But the Bible is for you to fix your eyes on Jesus. And as you fix your eyes on Jesus, the great benefit of that is your life does get fixed oftentimes as well. But uh, so we want to have a better understanding. Now, the Bible, I said last week, is all about Jesus, but it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. I mean, it's very long. Uh, it was written a long time ago, over a, over a thousand years in different places and in different languages. Uh, there's different genre, even in this passage we look at here. Uh, and so uh, it's easy to just kind of uh, say, man, I don't understand this. But really the Bible is, is the meta-narrative of the Bible, that the big overarching story of the Bible only has four parts. It's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so this series is dealing with those first two. This should give us a framework for understanding the the Bible. Uh, It it should also help us establish what is called a a biblical worldview. Everyone has a worldview. Maybe you didn't know that, but it's, it's how you see the world, how you see ultimate reality, what you think how you think you got here, how you, what you pursue, what you value, what you think is right and wrong. Uh, everyone has a worldview. A lot of things shape our worldview, but uh, for the follower of God, uh, the primary tool to shape our worldview is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so we want to align ourselves with that. When I was in the Czech Republic a few years ago, uh, and I was learning the language, and we were at a Czech church, and, and I had told the pastor, hey, if you ever want me to, I'd be happy to preach, uh, but, uh, you know, obviously I need a translator and all that. He's like, okay. So time went on and eventually said, Mark, I, I want you to preach this, this weekend. And I said, okay, that's awesome. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm the foreigner. Who's this weird guy? I'm just going to give my best stuff. What's the, what's the fun, the, the, the most engaging illustrations, all that. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll come up with something. He's like, no, no, no. I don't want you to come up with something. I'm assigning you something. I'm like, okay, great. What are we going to do? And he's like, we're going to do a, a series on apologetics. And I'm like, oh, okay. And you got, well, one of the things you have to understand, and one of the reasons we went to the Czech Republic is because the Czech Republic is the most atheist country in the world. So those that self-identify, that say there is no God, Czech Republic is in, in the tops in that category. And that, there's reasons for that. Part of it was 50 years of communist atheistic oppression. Uh, that Though the Czechs rejected communism, they held 
held on to the worldview saying there is no God. And so in that culture, uh, apologetics is, is a big deal. And I said, okay, well, what do you want me to talk on? And he said, I want you to give the first message. I'm like, oh, this is not going well. Well, what, what do you want the first message to be? Uh, I want you to answer the question, does God exist? I'm like, you're killing me. Are you serious? And, and uh, so I'm like, that's okay. Well, that's, if that's what you want, I'm here to serve, and, and I'll work on that. And so I worked on that, and, and I, I didn't keep my mouth shut because I said, well, tell me about the other messages in the series. What else are you going to cover? And, and he told me the things, and I said, well, you're missing one. You really need to also address, if God exists, why is there evil and suffering in the world? And he's like, you're right. You'll do that in week two. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. It was, but in that context, that was an appropriate thing. Now, we have different problems. We have different uh, issues. See, in America still, the vast majority, when Paul would say, they believe in some kind of God. In fact, they would, might, might even say, uh, vast majority might say, we believe in the Christian God. But, but when you begin to uh, uncover that and, and follow the, the track of Western civilization over the last couple hundred years, what you see is that, that there has been a major shift, whereas uh, at the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason, as that dawned on, uh, on the Western civilization, some things began to creep in and some philosophers began to come and they began to say some things. But by and large, even as people rejected the God of the Bible, they still had the basic Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview of here's what's right and here's what's wrong, here's what marriage is, here's what a man is, here's what a woman is. All these things were agreed upon even, on the, even by those that had no faith in God. But that's all shifting. That's all changing. Uh, it's, it's changed uh, a couple decades ago in, in our uh, higher education institutions. It's changed in very intentionally through our media and entertainment consumption. And we've been all drinking it in. And, and, and where, where have we been as the church? Totally caught off guard. In the last 30 years as this has shifted into Western civilization and people are rejecting the, 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 basis, the basic worldview of what's right and wrong, what's ultimately true, the church has been uh, nasal-gazing. We've been saying, oh, well, what, what does this have to do with me? How does this make me feel? I really want to feel good. And, and, and in light of this culture, we've been totally unprepared to engage a culture that has totally shifted. Uh, one study came out in 2005 on a study of American Christian teenagers, a guy named Christian Smith, his book called Soul Searching, the, the Religious Life of American Teenagers. Uh, so this is 2005, and, and he surveyed over 3,000 teenagers who had claimed Christ, grown up in the church, gone to, uh, gone to youth group, and he, and he said, what is their worldview? What are they basically, what are their beliefs? And, and he came up with this phrase called moralistic therapeutic deism. They basically believe that God, uh, there is a God and he just wants you to be a good boy and girl. He cares a lot about your morals. It's pretty much the same as any other religion in the world. Uh, he's therapeutic. He's, he's kind of only there when you need him. If you've got a problem in your life, then God's, God's available. But, but by and large, he's deistic. And that, that's the worldview that says that, that God created the world but does not engage in the world. There's no active presence of God in the world. And that's the worldview of, of our well, that's 2005, so now they're in their 20s and 30s. That's generally the worldview of the American church. 
And so in a time where we are being challenged, in a time when uh, we, there, there's so much confusion about, about so many things in our world, the church has been unprepared and unequipped to engage in a winsome, in a loving, and, and in an in a intellectual, uh, robust way. And so we We've got to recover that. So two reasons for this series. First, as a pastor, my first primary responsibility is to love God and, and to stand before him and say, I taught the whole word of truth. To love God and then to love you. To say the truth. And so there's some things that are going to come out in, in this series over the next nine weeks that will probably push against you. Probably you, you might not like. But after all, if you, only like the only, if you only like things that God says to you, what kind of God do you have? You don't have a God. You're God over that. Because God is not like us. He is above us. And as we'll see, He is glorious and we are to follow Him. But that's the first reason for this series. The second one is because I am a father of daughters. And I want my daughters to grow up to be ferocious women of God. I want them to be beasts. I want them to, to, to know what it means that God created them for a purpose, that they are women of God and to walk in that purpose. And I want them to know that when they grow older, what kind of man of God they should be looking for. Not a boy that can shave, not someone who just is kind of a roommate. I want them to find a man who knows who he is in Christ and knows his God. And is not there is no ambiguity in that. And so I have a personal investment in this with four daughters. And, and so that's why I wanted to do this series, Creation and Fall. So with that, let's begin uh, with verse 1 of the Bible, the most controversial, most revolutionary sentence ever written uh, in the history of the world goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now in this passage, uh, if you look closely, I learned this from Tim Keller this week, there's three things that you can see in this passage that there, that there were it, before the beginning, and by the way, as finite creatures, we don't really have good language or capacity to think outside, I, I got it, so to think outside uh, of time parameters. So, so what do you, how do you describe something as before the beginning? Well, that's a time stamp or, or how you're doing. Well, I'm doing pretty good now. We always, because we're finite, we, we think in time. But, but what you need to know is that before the beginning, if, if that's possible, uh, before there was a thing called time, there was and has always been God, and we'll see love, and then before the beginning, there was darkness. Let's, let's look at these here. Before the beginning, God existed. That's my, my first point here. Before the beginning, God. There was a God. So look at that. Uh, Francis Schaeffer says that this is the most pregnant sentence ever written uh, because if that's true, there are massive implications. If this is true, there are massive affirmations and massive denials of, of other worldviews. And so uh, before the beginning, there was God. Now you might think, well, of course, duh, there was God. But you got to realize that that thought, that sentence, when this was written, that was a totally revolutionary, totally unique idea. See, the ancient Near East creation myths 
always had to do with some gods and some chaos, some fighting, and out of the fighting, the, the world just kind of came up. And in one, one myth, uh, these gods fought, and, and the blood of one of the gods came down, and out of the blood, humans were created. And so there was all this kind of chaos, but then enter into the world this sentence, in the beginning, there was God, and he created all things ex nihilo. That's Latin for out of nothing. Uh, he, uh, well, we'll see. He speaks and the universe leaps into existence. So that's the first thing. There was creation. Second thing is, again, we see that, well, you're not the point. I'm not the point. And we don't like that because we like to be the point. I like to go home and I want to be the point of my kids. I want to be the point of my wife. I want to be the point in the world. I want, I want my waiter to make me the point when I go to restaurants. Uh, we love to be the point. But from the beginning, the verse words of Scripture shows us right away we're not the point. And this, this should it create some uh, awe in us. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created ex nihilo, out of nothing, the heavens and the earth. That means everything, the entire universe. And so this should invoke uh, a sense of awe and wonder at his power and his majesty and his glory. That's why the universe was created. I, I love NASA. Well, more specifically, I love the Hubble Space Telescope. I love that. I, like if someone's posting it on Facebook, I'm like, I'll look at these 15 pictures. I, I love to spend time on the Hubble site. I think it's hubblesite.com. I, I love to look at the, the nebulae and, and the dwarf stars and, and the other galaxies. I love all those things, but, but there's one that stands out beyond all the other ones. One picture that stands out beyond all the other ones. It was after they had taken many, many pictures, they decided, the scientists at NASA decided, let's point this thing to the, the darkest part of our sky and, and let's just crank that thing up, whatever they do. They, they, let's zoom in as far as possible into the darkest part. So if you can imagine uh, looking through a straw and, and just zooming and exploding that, they said, we want to see how far this thing can reach. And so it took several months for this thing for the telescope to get these pictures but as they came in and as you go to the site and you download it it's huge because you can like keep zooming in keep zooming in at first on your screen you're like wow that's a lot of stars and you begin to zoom in and you zoom in and you zoom in it's called a deep field uh, scope and uh, the, the the picture has a name for it because you realize those aren't stars those are galaxies it, the picture is called 10,000 galaxies and you see whirlpool galaxies, you see other kind of galaxies, you see galaxies eating other galaxies. It, it is amazing. And each one of those galaxies, our minds don't even have the capacity to fathom how, how far away those are, how big they are, and, and how massive the universe is. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's why they exist. Uh, David writes in Psalm 147, he determines the number of the stars. He gives them all their name. He, he has a unique name for every single one of them. This should blow your mind. This should cause some awe and reverence to, to rise up in you. But you might also be saying, well, um, you know, if that's so huge, then, then what, what, why is this earth such a big deal because after all we're in kind of an ordinary galaxy not that spectacular we're in kind of a small dinky little suburb of the galaxy uh, of our solar system and even in our solar system our planet really isn't all that impressive 
And yet the greatest drama in the history of the universe plays out here. We say, well, that's, that seems kind of arrogant of us humans to think that. But I'll say this about Scripture. God delights to make much of the small and the fragile. And you don't get much more small and fragile than planet Earth. And you tweak one or two things, and we don't live any longer on planet Earth. And it's here where God says, I'm going to make my name great. Out of, in the beginning, God created the universe. He created it not because he needed us. Well, that's, we're getting on to the next point. But uh, God creates space, time, mass, purpose, order, beauty. And out of that, we see morality. He has, he's the creator, and he establishes what's right and wrong, what's good and what's bad. And, and I love a good honest atheist. I'm going to quote some for you. My favorite atheists, Friedrich Nietzsche and Jean-Paul Sartre. The way, reason I love those guys is because they not only held to their atheism, they brought it to their logical conclusion. We're, we're most atheists today, like the, the new, new atheists, like they're all soundbite atheists. They're all, they, they don't really believe, you, you don't really believe that there's no thing as objective moral truth. You, you don't make the mistake of choosing cyanide over milk. They just don't do that. But people like John Paul Sartre and people like Frederick Nietzsche, who would go on to commit suicide, they lived out their atheism. And I respect that. Let me just read something from Sartre to you. He says this, Why is there something rather than nothing? If God is there, then we know why we exist. There is a purpose and ultimate reference point to everything. But if God is not there, then there is no purpose or meaning to anything. So listen to what Sartre says here. He says, All human activities are equivalent. Think about that. All human activities are equivalent. It amounts to the same thing whether one gets drunk alone or is the leader of nations. See what he's saying? It doesn't matter. Torturing babies for fun and rescuing slaves, morally equivalent. There is no difference. You might think, well, I don't like genocide. So what? Other people have other other opinions. Nazis had other opinions. You might think, well, it's not useful. Well, even the term useful is meaningless in a meaningless universe, but let's just go with that for a second. You might say, it's not useful for the human race to, to do genocide. And you say, well, on what basis? You believe in a Darwinian evolution, the survival of the fittest. Shouldn't the, the strong eliminate the weakest parts? And there are many that believe that. On what basis do you say what happened in Charlottesville is wrong? Sartre would say, at least, no basis. Now, Sartre, he, he, he would really make uh, other uh, Marxists and other atheists upset. Uh, but even him, he, he would go on through his life and demand people treat him well. But why? It's all meaningless. It doesn't matter. Sartre says, the good news for the atheist is that there is freedom there's freedom. You can do whatever, whatever you want. There are no cosmic consequences. He says the bad news is you have no intellectual basis to say what's right or wrong. All you have is your preference, and it doesn't matter. So I appreciate that. Now, if atheism is true, there's no such thing as beauty and love. 
things that we hold dear to as human beings. Now, I'm going to quote one of my least favorite atheists, Richard Dawkins, because again, he's a soundbite atheist. But listen to what he says about beauty and love. He says, when you look at a certain scenery, you think it is so beautiful because your ancestors believed that there was food out there. And that particular neurological feature that helped them survive has now come down to you, and that's the reason you see it as beautiful. See what he's saying? It's like, there's no such thing as beauty. You're just, there's some synapses firing off in your brain when you look at the stars and you're thinking, when you're camping, that, that makes me want to have a hot dog. <laughs> I mean, do you really believe that, right? Like, do you really believe that that feeling you have for your spouse or for your kids or for other people, that feeling of what we call love is really just a, a, bio, a biological evolutionary process that is, hey, you're, you're useful for propagating my DNA, so would you, uh, you know, whatever, we'll go do that. Um, when, I mean, it's just, we know inherently that's not true. We, we, we have a hunger and longing for more than that. But finally, since, since God existed before the beginning, all competing narratives are eliminated. So atheism is eliminated. If this sentence is true, there is a God, therefore atheism is eliminated. Dialectical materialism is eliminated. Dualism is eliminated. Dualism, that's that idea that like there's God, but there's also kind of a evil, and there kind of there's this cosmic conflict, and we don't know who's going to win, right? Because, or let me put it this way: in Hollywood, when you watch those movies where so the the girls possessed, and they bring in the priest, and you're like, uh oh, this is not going to end well. You know, is she going to turn her head? Is she going to spit pea soup at you? Is she going to turn into a spider and, and eat out your jugular? Uh, something like that. Like you don't know who's going to win the battle in that moment. But according to Genesis one one, no, there is no do. There, there is a such thing as evil and, and, and sin in the world. We'll see that in the coming weeks. But it, it isn't like Satan has any power over God. It isn't like uh, there's this cosmic battle that we don't know who's going to win. No, that's, that's off the table with this. Capitalist materialism uh, it, it can't be the point of life either. We were created beings not to consume the creation, but to take that and roll that up into worship of the creator. Polytheism is eliminated. The idea that there are many or millions of gods, as, as some worldviews. Pantheism and panentheism is eliminated. Think uh, Avatar, you know, when uh, they all plug their tails into the tree and they're like, oh, we're all part of the tree now. Or, or think Disney uh, Pocahontas, uh, which is is terrible because that, that woman became a Christian. She understood her creator. But that's not how Disney tells the story. Disney tells the story in a pantheist way that all is God. Uh, the trees are God. The birds are God. The, the, the rivers are God. The universe is God. And, and those of us that live in Colorado, this, kind of one, this one kind of makes sense because you can go up into the mountains and you can see the majesty of creation because we know it's majestic. And you can kind of think, man, this must be God. So it makes a little bit of sense, uh, but when you, when, until you begin to think about it. Well, let me, let me quote some pantheists. They didn't even know they were pantheists, but their quotes are pantheists. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. So anyone under 40 doesn't know who that is? Just think R. Putin. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, he said this once. He was the leader of the Soviet Union, but he says this, I believe in the cosmos of all... All of us are linked to the cosmos, so nature is my God. 
To me, nature is sacred. Trees are my temples, and forests are my cathedrals, being one with nature. Who knew he was such a poet, right? Like, after his time at, with the USSR, Hallmark should have signed him up. Man, nature is my God. The, the forest is my cathedral. And, and that, I mean, that, that's Colorado, right? That's the culture we live in. Like, like, a lot of people aren't here because they're in their church up in the mountains. And, and I get that. And it's close, but, but it misses the point. Because pantheists, they always, they always cast their worldview like that. Nature's my God. Oh, it's so lovely. But nature is brutal, bro. I mean, who dies? The weak, the young, the old, they're out of there. I mean, and it's brutal, right? If you don't believe it, man, watch the, the latest edition of Planet Earth. Uh, Ten years ago, Planet Earth 1 came out. We watched that. That was awesome. Uh, it, it was beautiful. You see God's creation. Of course, it's put out by BBC. Uh, and, and, but we started a couple weeks ago. We started two weeks ago. Planet Earth 2. Now it's in 4K high definition, right? And so, like, wow, this is really cool. It was all about islands. I love islands. And then they get to the island of Galapagos, and it's all about these iguanas sunning themselves on the beach. And then it says, but the iguanas have to, they lay their eggs inland, uh, and, and they've got a long journey to go to get into to the ocean, and it's dangerous. And I said, uh-oh, because the next scene is just a little picture of a snake face. And I'm like, this is not going to go well. And my kids are getting nervous. And I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it. It happens. This is nature. And the little iguana comes out of the shell and, and looks around. And the pa- camera begins to pan out. And I'm like, this is not going to be good. Like, that snake's going to chase him down. It's, I've, I've been there as a kid. I've seen the lion eat the zebra. It's not going to be good. But it was, no, no. It, it was far, far worse than that. I mean, this was like from my nightmares bad. Because as the, as the camera zoomed out and as the little lizard started to take off for the ocean, not just one snake, but like 40 snakes come from everywhere out of the rocks and they're just like coming in on it. And I'm like, ah, and my kids are like, ah, and they run out of the house and I'm just watching like, oh my God, nature is brutal. So no pantheist is like, nature's my God. Look at the snake scene. They're not going with that. They're like, oh, look at all the beautiful things. But nature is brutal. That's all I'm saying with that. To quote another uh, brilliant atheist and uh, physicist, astrophysicist, Carl Sagan. I mean, this guy was he, he's smarter than all of us in this room, but it uh, doesn't mean you always get the truth. Listen to what he said. And uh, uh, he said, A religion, old or new, that stressed the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be able to draw forth reserves of reverence and awe hardly tapped by the conventional faiths. Sooner or later, such a religion will emerge. What, what, what Sagan is saying is like, if, if people could just see what science is discovering, people will have this reverence and awe and worship God. Now, either he was ignorant of the Christian claim that the whole universe declares the glory of God, or he suppressed the truth. Because that's exactly what Christianity says the universe is glorious, the universe is amazing, but it isn't the thing to be worshipped. And so he misses the point. Uh, Romans 1 says that, that from the creation, people can see that the divine attributes and the power of God and that men are without excuse. By just looking at the stars, going to the mountains, you're without excuse. But it says, but men have suppressed the truth. Why? So we could do what we want to do in rebellion 
to this God who spoke and the universe came into existence. Well, that's the first point. The second one is that there was love. You say, where do you get that? Well, look at, uh, so there was God, there was love. The second half of verse 2. And the Spirit of God, so you've got God, Elohim, now you've got the Spirit of God was hovering. It's, a, it's the word used for like a, a mother hen a, a hovering over her, her young. It's a very intimate word. Uh, over the face of the waters. And then you say, okay, I see God, I see the Spirit. Uh, you say, this is the foundation for the Trinity. I don't see Jesus. Well, look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So God spoke. Now, the reason we read at the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, is because John, when he starts out his gospel about Jesus, he reaches back to Genesis and he starts off the same way, in the beginning. But John adds this caveat, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on, he says, all things were made by the Word and for the Word. And to be even more clear, Colossians chapter 1 tells us that by Jesus, all things were created by Him and for Him. So we've got the God the Father, we've got the Spirit of God, and we've got uh, the, the Son of God. And they're all there in creation. And they existed from eternity past. See, God did not create the world. He did not create you and me because He was lonely. He had no need. He was, he was the very essence of love, 1 John 4, 8 says, that in the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past were loving one another, submitting to one another, serving, honoring, glorifying one another, John chapter 17 says. This is the nature of God. And so this God who creates the universe says, this is what relationships are, are to be like. The Apostle Paul will say, the greatest picture of the Trinity is marriage, where two become one flesh, and they, they, they give birth, and they have an offspring. That's a picture of the Trinity. There was perfect love before the beginning. And this God who created all things says, this means that our world has, you have to have the primacy of relationships. Like you were created for relationships, not for power, not for money, not for status, but ultimately for relationships. So let me just speak to, to the men here because if anything, men will pull away from relationships. So think about your dad's friends. Name them on one hand probably. You, you probably can't because as men, we, we tend to pull away. We, we tend to uh, deny our created order for the primacy of relationships and eventually uh, we pull away even from our spouses and our our kids, and that causes havoc because we're living in such a way that we were not intended to live. It's not the created order. And so in this passage from the very beginning, God is teaching us that we were made to be in relationships. Let me quote C.S. Lewis, and this is, a, this is a difficult quote, but just try to track with him for a second, talking about the nature of God and relationships. He says this, in self-giving, we touch a rhythm not only of all creation, but of all being. For the eternal Word also gives Himself in sacrifice. That's Jesus. 
For when he was crucified, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, which he had done at home in glory and gladness. See what C.S. Lewis is saying. When Jesus went to the cross and, and submitted to himself and gave himself away, he was only doing what he had been doing from all eternity past in the Godhead, a giving himself away, a honoring the others, a glorifying the Spirit and the Father. He's saying that's just a natural outcome when he went to the cross. He goes on. He says, uh, he had done at home in glory and gladness. From the highest to the lowest, self exists to be abdicated. And by that, abdication becomes the more truly self. Meaning you were created to give yourself away in serving the people next to you, in serving your family, in serving your city. That's why you were created. And we are, we, it works best when we live out of that. He goes on. He says this. This is not a law which we can escape. What is outside the system of self-giving is simply and solely hell. That fierce imprisonment in the self. Self-giving is absolute reality. When you give yourself away, you're doing what you were created to do. When you're being selfish, you're actually bringing on the powers of chaos, sin, and darkness. So there was God, there was love, and then there was darkness. That's the last point here. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So what's going on, on here? So before the beginning, there was darkness. And out of the chaos of darkness, under God's word, come light and order. That's creation. So you say, so what? What's the big deal about darkness? Well, here's the deal. Uh, sin unleashes the forces of chaos and darkness. So in the Bible, uh, we see this throughout the Bible, but in a very famous passage in Exodus chapter 5 through 10, uh, the plagues against Pharaoh who had enslaved God's people in Egypt. And what are those plagues? Are you ever wonder how, why Pharaoh didn't just like after the first one just give up? Well, because they were so natural. There was still some question like, well, is God really doing this? Why, why didn't God just come and have Moses just kind of levitate above him and be like, God sent me? And he didn't do that. And why didn't he do that? Because God was showing Pharaoh and God is showing us that that sin brings a breaking down. It breaks down relationships. It breaks down our lives. It breaks down the order of the universe. It's a, it's a decreating of the universe. So, so God doesn't, when you sin, God doesn't have to come down and smite you and punish you. Uh, Romans tells us that often when we sin, the punishment is built into the sin. Like, okay, so you've, you've, you've betrayed your spouse. Now you live with that betrayal and that brokenness and all, all the shrapnel with that. That's built into the sin. But, but in, in the, the plagues, what happens? God strikes the Nile and it turns to blood. All the, all the stuff in the Nile dies. And out of that, the, the frogs come, and, and the frogs infest the houses, and then they die. Then there's, there's the gnats that come after that, and, and they take over, and they, they bring disease, and, and the cattle die. And, and all these things are like, it's tragic, it's unheard of, but it seems very, very natural and normal. But then there, there's 9 and 10. Well, Matthew chapter 27 tells us that Jesus... Well, John says he was the Word, and the Word was light and life. But when he went to the cross, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. 
Creation was unraveling itself. The creator was being uncreated that, so that you and I could be recreated. And on the cross, as, as he is receiving the wrath of God for your sin and mine, and as he's dying, creation is unraveling, and earthquake happens, and the tombs break open, and all this stuff begins to happen because the, the ninth plague was darkness would come in. It's an unraveling of creation. And darkness happens at the cross. And the tenth plague, what's the tenth plague? The death of the firstborn son. And God sends His firstborn son, and He dies in our place for our sin. It's an unraveling of creation. And then you notice in John's gospel, uh, after the resurrection, what, what does he do? He, Jesus does this weird thing. He goes up to the disciples, and it says He breathed in their faces. You're like, well, that's weird. That must have just been a cultural thing. No, they didn't do that back then either. What was he doing? He was recreating. By the breath of God, the universe is created. He goes to his disciples now having been decreated. He is now recreating and giving them life by the Spirit. So, how, how do we respond to Genesis 1 through 3? I, I think there's three things. The first one is, uh, just repentance of all the ways we resist and challenge the beautiful creator of the universe, of all the ways we've tried to make it about our story and not his story, of all the ways we've, we've made relationships about us and not about serving the other person. Uh, this passage calls us to repentance. And when God is calling you to repentance, it's his good gift to you. It's grace to you. He wants to recreate and restore. I, I think this passage also calls us to worship. God has show, if God has shown you His glory, it's so that you can enjoy Him and worship Him forever. That's a good gift from God. And then the last thing I, I would say is to engage. We were made for the primacy of relationships, to, to plug in, to serve one another, serve your neighborhood as you have a block party, serve this church in ways that you can open up your home or uh, go to a gospel community, find ways to Step into the created order. That's how life works. That's how the Creator made it. So, we need to restore a robust biblical worldview and theology. For our sake, because the world is shifting and changing and there's so much confusion out there. And by the way, the church should be the best place for confused people to come to. Like, like they're, they're going to come through our doors. There's going to be people with issues of sexual identity and, and transgender. And this should be the place to say, you are welcome here. Welcome to the glory of God. Let us tell you about the grace and the truth of God. This is the place. We have the truth and we have grace. So let this be a place of grace. Over the next few weeks, as we talk even about some of those things, uh, some of our tendency might be just to kind of snicker a little bit, but that's not creating an environment where people can really come in and sit under the Word of God and hear the worship of God and be transformed. Man, the world is confused. The world doesn't know, but we know, and it's not because we deserve to know. It's because of the grace of God alone, and so let's be gracious people to the world. For our sake, for the sake of our loved ones, we've got to help equip our, our loved ones, our children, and for the sake of the world. We want to be against the world for the world. What that means is we want to resist the things that they say, this is what's true about God. We say, no, that's not what's true, but let's, in love and grace, tell you what's true. To that end, let me pray for us, and then we'll come to the communion table. God, thank you for your word. 
Lord, I'm sure there are 10 million more applications and implications from verse 1 of your word. Lord, help us to think on these things and to to, uh, bring them into a practical outworking of our life that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus, I thank you that uh, you didn't just leave us in our sin to let our world unravel in the chaos and darkness, that you aren't just just, but you're good and you're merciful and you're loving as well. So you came to the cross and you became undone that we might be remade in your image. Lord, show us what it means to live out this truth this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.